Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey, welcome back to Behind the Knife. So this is a, another in the installment of the Behind the Knife uh, Association for Academic Surgery, uh, How I Built It Clinical and Health Services Research Series. I'm joined once again with Fabian Johnston, who's the Section Chief of GI Oncology and Program Director for Complex General Surgical Oncology at Johnson Hopkins. And he's the Chair for the Clinical and Health Services Research Committee for the AAS. So in the series, we get to sit down with leaders in the field of clinical and health services and, and have an opportunity to pick their brain as to how they got where they are. Um, and uh, shed a little insight into the uh, world of clinical and health services research. So, Fabian, who are we talking to today? Hello, hello, everybody. Um, and so we will be talking to Dr. Carl Bellamoria. Dr. Bellamoria is the Vice Chair for Quality in the Department of Surgery at Northwestern and the John Benjamin Perf Murphy Professor of Surgery at the Feinberg School of Medicine and is currently our president of the AAS. So welcome, Dr. Bellamoria. So happy to uh, talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, you know, we're going to get right into it. And really, you know, we're going to ask kind of a big question, um, but it's uh, I think it's important for folks to understand, you know, um, you know, how did you get started in this field? Because I, I know a little bit about your backstory, yeah. um, which I, you know, we're uh, contemporaries, but I think it'd be great for the listeners as their thing getting started in, in HSR research, you know, how you began. Yeah, so in 2004 or 2005, there weren't a lot of opportunities to get trained in outcomes and quality, as you know. And so I had to piece together a fellowship of sorts when I wanted to do my two years during the research time. And uh, I was told that, uh, that you know, what is outcomes research? That will be a waste of time. There's no chance you will ever get a surgical oncology fellowship if you do this. And uh, I was stubborn and I thought we could find a way. And through some help from a couple mentors at Northwestern, we approached uh, Dave Winchester, who was the uh, head of cancer programs at the American College of Surgeons. And luckily, the American College of Surgeons is on the same block as Northwestern. So that made it convenient. We just had to walk across the street. And Winchester immediately saw the value and, and actually was willing to fund having a resident at the college. Um, and Tom Russell at the time was the head of the American College of Surgeons. And he had actually thought about this. He wanted to make it a, a college where there were actually surgeons coming and going, doing work for the college, doing research. And so it all kind of fit together. And so that uh, experience of being the first clinical scholar at the college, and since then we've trained another, I don't know, 25 or 30 over the last 15 years. Uh, but that really set me up. And the college experience is unique. You uh, interact with people that you wouldn't normally get to, and you see things in science and politics that uh, most others wouldn't. And so I think that set me up for just a, uh, uh, a head start in getting started as faculty. Um, and so it was a lot of luck and a little bit of pushing. So what's interesting about that is, you know, as folks are getting started, you were you were not just a, being the first was really important. And I think some people within their institutions are going to be the first. And, you know, I think you would agree with me that there are still some people that hold the mindset that uh, you were given that this is a fad. Um, this is, you know, you're not going to be successful with this. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about some of those early challenges um, and what you kind of see as the corollaries today for some of these folks? Yeah, I think the uh, AAS is a nice uh, 
sort of model to look at right now, the meeting has entirely flipped. So if you look at the current meeting here in 2020, we are 85% health services outcomes, clinical research, and 15% basic science. And so uh, I think the idea that it's a fad has passed. Uh, I think the part that still plagues us is that people will still pick up a database and churn out a question. It's not particularly hypothesis-driven research. It's more data mining. And that sort of gives us, uh, as a field, a little bit of a bad name. And so I think as we continue to evolve, we can make sure that we're doing good research driven by good questions. And I think that, uh, you know, as a fellowship director, I'm sure you see lots of CVs with lots of papers on them. And, and 20 years ago, it was really hard to do some of that work. The statistical packages weren't there. It was more work to clean data sets. Now, you know, anybody can churn out a data set project. And so it's not quite as unique. And so continue to push yourselves to ask really great questions and then find a data set that might help you um, or collect your own data. That's even better. So uh, I think the corollaries today are interesting. So there are a couple areas that the AAS is focusing on in the strategic plan. It's, and it's those groups um, that don't have a home right now. And so there are a couple of those. Education continues to be one of those. Education research is legitimate research, um, and it needs to be fostered as such. And that we have focused on over the last few years, and the AES has really been able to advance. I think the other ones include ethics research, and there are probably some other non-traditional pathways in research uh, where you're not necessarily the PI of an R01. You're not looking for K-Ward to R01 transitions. Instead, you're a partner in research, and you are a mentor to residents and students doing straightforward projects, and that's important. And we can find a way to help people do that, train them to do that, uh, because that, too, can be done with excellence. And so I think there, there are people who are in similar spots as we were uh, 15 years ago, where their research isn't necessarily uh, uh, readily available in a home somewhere. And so we gotta, we have to create those homes for them and, the, and training and development. So what, what, what's interesting, and what I, you know, I wanna put a pin in that a little bit when I come back to it, you found a home. And so back when you were thinking about this, you know, How'd you even decide to do HSR? I remember for me, I was I was psych major. I thought, you know, for me this was gonna be the spot on thing, but the same thing I was told was, you know, um, I didn't even know this was a real entity of research. So I thought I had to go and do it in basic science life. So how did you discover this? How did you cultivate this? How did you know that this was something that you could do and, and how did you move along that line? Yeah, so the one thing that gave me a little bit of credibility and wanted to do something different was that I had actually done basic science. Um, I had uh, been in a lab at Northwestern undergrad for three years, uh, you know, did a, gra- in a, a thesis uh, as an undergrad, and then I went to the NIH, and I was in a lab uh, in the endocrine uh, division that Francis Collins took a particular interest in. So if you were going to get excited about basic science, it was going to be there. And I didn't get excited about basic science. I felt like that many things shouldn't go wrong in my life as they do in the lab. And so, uh, and, and it was really far removed from the patient. You didn't know whether you could uh, impact patient care by what you were working on in the lab. It was sort of a long shot almost. And so for me, I wanted something that was more immediate gratification. I think surgeons can relate with that, right? So uh, I wanted something that was closer to the patient. And so I kept creeping through medical school, through residency, closer and closer um, to eventually what got labeled as outcomes and quality improvement research by actually other folks. And that's what really then made me think about how do I create a formal training program around something I was already doing sort of casually. Mm -hmm. So 
which would be great to want for you to tell us, you know, you kind of, you had done this other research, and so you now had foresight, right? Or at least some context to say, well, that's not for me. And so for those people who are going into the lab, or um, what would you say to them? You know, what are those things that really resonated with you that they may not know as they're kind of waffling or considering and trying to be introspective about their future? Yeah, I think uh, I hear a lot from residents who are debating whether to do basic science or outcomes research. And um, I think you have to do whatever gets you excited. And basic science can be really exciting as well. It's just different. And you have to understand how it's different. Um, and it's about that proximity of the patient. I think that makes a big difference. Uh, the other thing I really would push things to push people to think about is that uh, you want to be able to do something that you're going to be able to do when you're done. And if you really want to do basic science when you're done, do it now and create a career out of it um, and and think about how you'll support yourself immediately after you're done with your research time and get a job, uh, what additional training you'll get at that point. But if you think that you're going to be a clinical surgeon, have a small research piece, and you're looking to do some research, outcomes research probably fits a little bit better with what you want to do um, and will teach you things and keep sort of things that are more proximal to your practice. Um, the other question I get is, does, does it have to be what you want to do eventually when you're done? So do I have to do colorectal research now if I want to be a colorectal surgeon? And I will tell you that some of the best people who got colorectal fellowships from Northwestern, top colorectal fellowships, uh, ended up doing you know vascular basic science with Molina Kibbe. So I think as long as you do well during your research time, you'll be able to do whatever you want afterward. Now, if you know, go for it. But if you don't, I would not worry. Uh, I think, you know, certainly the program director, I, th I think it's nice to see people just doing good work. And I tell people the same thing, you know, if, if you're, you know, use the resources you have with you, right? Because if your group doesn't have X, then you can only do so many things with that. Um, so piggybacking off of that is, did you encounter any, uh, or do you see when you look across as we are having increased proliferation of different uh, research programs, research shops, what kind of barriers do you see people are encountering Maybe in a lab, but really when they start off, so the early career HSR researchers, um, what, what kind of barriers do you think um, they should be looking out for as they uh, go out and start their career? Yeah, so I think uh, as you're looking for a job, if you are interviewing and the person who is leading that recruitment says, oh, yeah, base, uh, 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 health services research is cheap, outcomes research is cheap, all you need is a computer and a desk, uh, you have somebody that's not ready to support you. Uh, because it takes more than that to build a team um, of folks to get resources and uh, there are supplies and you know not just simple computers sometimes you need more than that and so uh, I think you need an investment in outcomes researchers as you do for basic scientists and to be honest these startup packages look largely similar in terms of the financial amount um, so if people are willing to invest in you that's key the other thing is you need other people that you can work with. There is nobody that can just do this on their own. And so you need other expertise. And it doesn't have to be in surgery. I didn't have anybody in surgery when I got started there, uh, per se. And so you can cobble together folks from other areas who can be mentors and sponsors um, and collaborators. And it doesn't even have to be at your own institution. It is nice to have a couple of key mentors at your own institution. Uh, I was fortunate to have a, a pediatrician, health services researcher, who really mentored me quite a bit. Uh, 
so I think you, you know you need somebody who's going to support you, and you need to have a cadre of mentors. I think those are the two big things. If you have that and the drive, you will succeed. So you know, I think that's really good. Um, what's interesting is. Um, do you think that there's an issue from a mentorship standpoint? Because certainly, you know, some institutions, they'll say, well, you're a surgeon. You won't have enough time. And there's a misnomer that you don't need time to do HSR research either, right? Like basic right. science, right? right? You don't have enough time. I may not want to mentor you. And so how do we navigate that? Is there a time, you know, should there be time set aside? Should there be, what kind of resources should we be looking for uh, in that package? Right. I, I think if you're going to make an investment in somebody financially, you have to make it so they can have the protected time to do that. And so all of our hires have 50% protected time uh, for the first few years uh, to do research. Uh, it makes no sense to give them a bunch of money and no time. Um, and so uh, it, you certainly need the time. I don't think there's any substitute for that. And it's not just the time. You need to be extremely regimented in how you develop your schedule. So you know that that patient care will creep over if you're not very clean about delineating when you're doing what. Um, certainly emergencies come up, but there are ways to partition your time. And the people who do it well and who are efficient uh, are the ones who succeed. Yeah. I think uh, hopefully that the chairs will be hearing that as well <laughs> <laughs> and recognizing that that's a, a need. So um, would you say that there is a, you know, you've certainly done a lot um, in your career thus far. Are there projects and things that you've done that you're any particularly proud of? I, you know, they're all like children. You love them all. Uh, there are probably some that I kind of find more interesting. But I think if I were proud of a particular thing right now, um, it would be the 30 mentees, surgical residents who have come through and worked with me. Um, they are a blast. They've done great work. Uh, they have, I think, now seven or eight first author JAMA New England Journal art articles between them. Uh, they have gone on to academic careers, and we've recruited many of them back to join the group. And so what better marker of fun and success than to bring back your mentees? And so to me, that's a particular highlight. That's outstanding. Do you, uh, as you're thinking about this, um, how do you... Um, um, how do you plan for the future, right? You know, certainly as a thought leader within the field, how do you plan for the future within your institution and across? Um, what do you think about? What keeps you up at night? If anything keeps you up at night, your cool, calm, collected character. Yeah. <laughs> um, what keeps me up at night is uh, about junior faculty making the transition and the jump and how we make sure all the people. So we have, you know, 15 faculty in our group now. Um, and in a variety of stages. Some have made the jump to our awards and some are on K's and will need to. And really making sure that happens, that we you know, grow them, continue to make sure they can do great work and ask great questions um, and support their lives is really important. And so it doesn't keep me up at night. I think we've given them a platform. They're all excellent people. But I think uh, if anything, that worries me. And particularly at that scale, how do we get that many people to make the jump to uh, an R award and a sustained funding program of their own. Um, you know, we had a very visionary chair in Nat Soper, and he said that uh, anytime we were looking for a new clinical need, we would go look for an outcomes HSR person first, if we could find one. And we would plug that 
clinical need with somebody. And, and, and usually it wasn't a full FTE, so it worked out well, and we'd give them 50% protected time. And so that's how we were able to build such a huge group, because we had a chair who really supported this vision. And I don't think either one of us thought it would become what it is. Uh, but uh, when we started, for sure, um, it all looks nice and clean after the fact, you know, when we sort of put it together. But I think having that vision um, created a lot of opportunities, but now it's created a lot of obligation to make sure all those people make the jump. So if you could, it'd be great if you can speak with that a little bit, because I think a lot of chairs want to build what there are a few shops around the country. Yours is one of them, right? And, you know, I think... There was some intentionality, and as you said, some luck that was associated yeah, with that. And so, you know, what are those things that you can pluck out? Because often they're, you know, trying to identify a person, and they believe they and they have the resources to do so. Some don't put the resources, but you know, what are those things that you think we really need to have if you're going to develop a top-notch shop? Right. Um, I think if you're building a shop from scratch, the first thing you have to do is get that one person successful and independent um, and really successful. So there's you know, sort of extra resources and extra projects to go around. Um, support that with great trainees. Uh, residents can do a ton of great work and learn at the same time. The other key I thought that was very, success- that was very important to our success was hiring a, um, a PhD who was sort of very selfless, uh, just wanted to help the team, a utility infielder, but smarter than all of us put together. And, you know, she really catapulted everything we do and was able to uh, do a lot of work while I was in the OR, while I was mentoring residents, while I was traveling and giving talks. You know, we made sure that the trains were running still. Um, it's like, uh, what is that? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. You're not rich unless you're, you know, making money while you sleep. You know, yeah. you have to be able to do research while you're doing other things. And uh, having a really strong PhD can help with that. Then you can start to build out the other pieces. You can start to get more analysts and project managers and, and more faculty. But again, when you hire those new faculty, they have to have protected time. They have to have startup funds. Um, and they have to have a good mentor panel. And so... We were thoughtful each time. We didn't take on more than one at a time, really. Um, and so we were able to build slowly over time. But, well, I guess it wasn't that slow. But <laughs> um, uh, I think those are some of the keys to building a program. Well, I mean, I think, though, I think for the things that you're saying is key, right? You know, they developed you, helped invested in you get you in a position to be successful and then allow the process to grow more organically, which, you know, once you have that foundation, which is yourself and the, your PhD colleague, everything can grow up really well from that foundation. But if you don't have that, um, if you just say we're going to throw um, money at it or that person is not as fully developed or as person is not protected, um, I think that's something to fail. What do you think in terms of, um, you know, certainly the residents, what they're doing um, is some are getting masters during their lifetime in some of these shops or and some are and doing the research. Some are just reading a book and yeah. learn how to do it on the, on the fly. And so do you have a opinion, a bias in terms of how this should be done? Is there any one way it should be done or it doesn't matter as long as you're getting it? Because as you said early on, there are certainly folks, as I'm seeing, you know, 50 papers are coming interviewing for us with fellowship. And um, when I talk to some of these people and I, and I give them pointed advice, some of these people don't know what they're talking about. Right. 
right. right? You know, 50 papers doesn't equate actual knowledge and someone to become HSR researchers, at least what they say, but clearly they're not going to be that. And so what do you think for the residents who are going to the lab, who are going to come out and then interview with you for, for a job right. um, or fellowship? How do you, how do you um, parse that out? Yeah, so I, I have a strong bias. All of our trainees have gotten a master's degree unless they already had one. Um, and even then, if they had one, we still put them through more courses to sort of refine their skill set. I don't think there's any substitute. If we're going to build somebody who's going to be able to do this for a career, you have to build a toolbox. And without a degree, that's not going to happen. Um, the other thing that it does is that it introduces them to other people around the institution who do this sort of work. And so they now can start to expand their mentor pool and expand their horizons about different types of research questions from just me or the other surgical faculty. So I think it's critical. We wouldn't take anybody that didn't want to do it. And I certainly would not hire a faculty member that did not have a master's degree um, to, who wanted to do this work as an independent investigator. What if they wanted to get a master's part of their K? So we know. So we've done that um, in one instance, um, but that was more of a person who was interested in quality and safety rather than actual um, sort of uh, really high end research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are different phenotypes that can can be developed, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think that uh, there's usually enough time being a practicing surgeon. Um, even on a K, to do your master's, do the research like you get when you have two years of fully protected time as a resident. So I think that's really important advice. Um, I myself got my K during my fellowship to the last time I could do it. And I think, you know, we certainly talk about these things, but the creep of the OR, agnostic of, you know, what you want to do, or forget the OR, things happen, as you said earlier on. And so you're planning on going to that lecture. You yeah. really were. But then Mrs. McGillicuddy gets sick. Yeah. <laughs> and right. the family discussion um, has to occur. And so I think that's important for the residents um, to hear. Um, and, you know, but as we're having this proliferation of some programs or some folks aren't able to go off. And so, you know, I'll ask you then, what happens to those folks, right? How should we then mentor those folks who they're going to be in a paper shop, which is going to be fine. It's going to get you a fellowship, right? But if you want to do this and you can't go off or you are advised not to go off, you know, what do we do for those folks in those situations? They may not go to Northwestern for the job, um, but what should they be thinking about as they go off, get into their first job? Right. So I think there are, we should allow different phenotypes and have space for that. Um, that, but if we're looking for people who are going to have independently funded shops, careers in health services and outcomes research, I think that we, we would be looking for people who have formal training. But again, this other phenotype of people who want to do research as a smaller component of their career um, should also be supported. And so we have many opportunities to do that. So there are courses through the American College of Surgeons. Uh, you can you know, get involved in the Surgical Outcomes Club. You can be part of the AAS. There are lots of opportunities to learn about research, and, and hopefully we'll start to support that even more through the AAS. Uh, you know, there are master's programs now, and we have one of them at Northwestern, that are more of an executive program. And so the health services and outcomes degree can be done in an executive model where you come to Chicago a couple times a year for a week. And the rest of the time, it's all done online. Um, there's synchronous and asynchronous content. So I think there are opportunities for people who, who, have other, who are in other settings who want to get trained to do this work. 
So there are certainly, um, you said phenotypes. Mm -hmm. On the back end, there's a lot of phenotypes that are, are there and opportunities that present themselves um, or you can kind of craft for, your, for yourself. And so, you know, um, when I'm saying, you know, um, administration, policy, straight research, you know, leadership as a de department chief and things like that. Um, can you speak towards those opportunities and how you first will say how you yourself has decided kind of where you're sitting in your space? Really insightful. And I actually did not um, appreciate uh, the impact that HSR was having on health system leadership. Uh, we're seeing an increasing number of people who have formal health services research uh, experience, training, and productivity who then take on roles as health system leaders because it translates naturally. You understand the data. Uh, you understand the policy issues much better than you know a basic scientist, per se, who is involved in something totally different, important, but totally different. Um, and so I think you, you know, Justin Dimmick and I were talking about this recently, that the HSR toolbox has served the community well in surgery because it is creating more chairs, chiefs, and health system leaders. And so uh, I think it's a good pathway. I think there are some pitfalls in that. Um, I think you can't switch too early. Uh, if you just do some research and then make the shift, uh, you may not have gotten everything that you should get out of your research. So if there's a way to keep it going in parallel, I think that's great. Um, it's sort of like being a, a practicing surgeon. You have to be a practicing surgeon in order to ask good research questions um, in the HSR world, I believe. Similarly, you have to be a practicing surgeon to be a really great uh, physician administrator um, or a practicing physician of any kind. But uh, I think... If you can do all three, if you can be the administrative leader of types, practicing surgeon, and continue your research, they will be synergistic. Um, and you'll be able to turn some of your research toward the questions that you identify, not only from clinical practice, but from the health system needs. And so that's where I think um, uh, I, by again, a lot of luck, was able to sort of morph my career into having all three of those things. Um, and it's worked out very well. And uh, the health system, I think, benefits by having our research shop do a ton of work that's now focused on using the health system as a laboratory. So is that the, is that a new triple threat? Is that yeah, how we should it be might thinking be a about new it? triple threat. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting you say the health system is benefiting. And I think, you know, and you reference uh, Demick, certainly they're using, you know, working with insurance companies within the state of Michigan. And you guys are using your health system um, kind of laboratory. Can you speak towards that more? Because I think in the current age now um, of value-based medicine, that would be a huge value added, in my opinion. Um, but we don't all know how to realize it, number one. And number two, how do we, first, probably how to sell it, because right. you don't have it, right? Then how do you sell it? Um, and then how do you realize it once you have sold that? Right. Uh, yeah, so I think, I think of our laboratories as three. We have our, our main academic hospital, we have our health system of 11 hospitals, and then we have a 56 hospital quality collaborative that our group uh, runs the operation for. And we use all of them as a laboratory, depending on the research question. And in the health system, you know, Northwestern has become an aligned, uh, integrated academic health system very quickly. Um, for example, one of the first things we do uh, when a new hospital comes on is uh, install the same instance of the EMR across all the hospitals. So that makes research much easier to do. We have the same model everywhere. We can pull the same type of data. 
Um, we also have created health system collaboratives. So we have uh, specialty-specific collaboratives, and we bring physicians, administrators, nurses, and other relevant stakeholders together to make decisions about the health system in that specialty area. Uh, so we have one place to go when we want to do something interesting on the research side to talk to them, see what they need, uh, give them ideas and see if they're on board with some of the ideas that we have. And so that's really facilitated using the health system as a laboratory. Um, along, you know, we intentionally turned inward. So we turned all of the faculty to having at least one part of their agenda as using the hospital as a laboratory or the health system and doing quality improvement work but tied to rigorous research. And so most of our faculty have a federal grant that is tied to the research that's done in the health system. So is this just a Department of Surgery imperative? Is it Northwestern across the board? How does this look? Yeah, so it's in surgery to start, and now we're looking at how do we expand this and train learning health system researchers across other departments. Certainly other departments at Northwestern have fantastic people who have figured out portions of this, but I think we're a group that has intentionally turned our attention toward uh, inward research um, and aligning with the trajectory of the health system. We look for the problems that the health system has and then align our research to that. Um, and that's different, right? So a lot of researchers have their own ideas and then want to push that on the health system. We're sort of flipping the research model. We think about what the health system needs, where it's headed, where its vulnerabilities are, where its deficiencies are, and then align research. So I had really minimal interest in venous thromboembolism, but Northwestern had an issue there. And so we turned an entire part of our research agenda toward addressing that problem and understanding it better. And it's led to you know numerous high-profile publications, multiple grants, federal grants on the topic. Um, and now I love VTE, but you know, <laughs> it was sort of a, everybody. sort of an arranged marriage, you know, like the love came later. Right. So, so, you know, I think what's important there, um, which I think a lot of leaders can learn from is that you, you discuss two things that are, uh, not necessarily always, uh, congruent is integration collaboration, which aren't necessarily the same thing. Right. And so, um, you know, I'll ask you this last, uh, major qu- uh, question I think is, how have you guys focused on integration? Because everyone is gobbling up hospitals, right, um, and trying to put their stamp on it in places that have had their own um, um, cultures. And so how has integration worked for you guys, if it has worked? Um, and do you feel that your work has been a, 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 a a binding, um, um, you know, kind of the root that keeps everything together, or is it the collaboration that's really helping to push it along? Where, where have you seen this in your system? Yeah, I think as we, you know, think about bringing a new hospital into the health system, the the discussion is about how to get aligned very quickly. And so a lot of our business practices, HR practices, financial practices are transferred immediately. Uh, the EMR comes after that, and then they join the clinical collaborative. So we start to align care so it looks and feels similar across our health system. And we we have done it in some cases very slowly to build trust first, um, to make sure everybody's comfortable. And I think the idea that the academic hospital has the answers to push onto these uh, regional hospitals is false. 
we learn a ton from these other hospitals that join us. They have done innovative things for years, uh, but in relative isolation, right? They just have this great system that's working. But if we can identify that as researchers and then help implement it across the health system, study it, improve upon it, that is beautiful research. And so we really encourage that. And the collaboration model that we have encourages anybody to step forward with ideas, needs, and the group works together to identify those. And so um, we, of course, have tons of work to do in getting to true, complete alignment and integration. Uh, but I think we're really far ahead compared to some of the other health systems I see, uh, particularly those that are uh, you know, anchored uh, by an academic medical center. So. I think what we're, I could go on and on talking about this as I'm certainly a geek about these things. Um, but I think what we've heard from you is that um, certainly the path um, wasn't as straightforward and easy as many people probably think looking at you. Um, but you know, certainly there was a vision on your part and vision on some leadership part um, to help you to develop a foundation. Um, there was nurturing of this, again, both from you and as, as your leaders and uh, mentors uh, around you um, and allow you to develop something over the course of now you know, 15 years or so. So, you know, I, I really um, certainly enjoy talking to you on this. The last thing we generally like to ask our panelists is tell us something about you that we don't really truly know. Um, it can be, you know, something fun is usually what we like to end up hearing about. And so we don't tell you ahead of time. We're going to ask this question to see what kind of comes out of you. Oh, man. I wish you would have asked in advance. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. What's something fun? I um, Interesting. It doesn't Interesting. You know. I have no hobbies. You don't do anything? I have none. So, I work, and I love it, and I love the research, and I think of that as a hobby. And if I have any other time, it, go, it, it is. It's, it's a great fun. I don't mind it. Uh, if I have time, I'd love to do that. But if I have time beyond that, um, my sole focus is on family. And I'm three kids and three young kids. And... Uh, uh, that's the best part. So uh, I don't. I don't need any hobbies. I want to do what they want to do. So. <laughs> Always want to do what they want to do. That's not quite accurate. Okay. All right. That's not <laughs> <laughs> As my daughters are like, we want to paint all of your nails. I was like, oh, oh sure. Sounds oh, great. Please. Uh, <laughs> my, I hope my kids don't hear this because th that idea has not occurred to them yet. So, oh yeah. well, we'll see them soon. <laughs> Dr. Carl Billamoria, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks. This was great. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.